أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم Dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to this another uh, remote Elmfeed podcast episode uh, we're still not back in the studio as you can see but with this new situation there's there have actually been some benefits and one of those benefits i would say has been that alhamdulillah we've been able to reach out to guests who we might not usually have done simply because we would have you know waited for them to come to the uk or uh, some kind of situation where they could come to the studio but alhamdulillah because of you know modern technology because of the current situation where everyone is moving online we've had the opportunity to invite some great guests and today's guest is no different alhamdulillah i have with me today ustada nuruddin knight all the way from america ustada nuruddin completed an ma in psychology with a focus on children and family from columbia university um, and alongside her academic degree she studied traditional islamic knowledge including islamic law theology spirituality and uh, the prophetic biography with local scholars and in the majalis in amman jordan mashallah she is also author of 40 hadith of the aisha a collection of 40 hadith narrated from the beloved sage scholar wife of the prophet mother of the believers aisha radhiyallahu anha And Ustada Nuruddin, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, thank you Ustada Fatima for having me on. Oh, I'm so pleased that we've got to meet because I think we've only kind of come across each other virtually mm-hmm. up to now, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, alhamdulillah, I've benefited from your work online and I think, yeah, through Twitter, WhatsApp, we've come across each other, alhamdulillah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. And I've actually got a copy of your book. I don't know if you oh, can see it. Mashallah. You see, you can see I've got all the uh, post-it notes because I've been <laughs> I've been using it. Alhamdulillah, I've been teaching this class um about the life and scholarship of Aisha radhiyallahu anha during lockdown. And uh, this has been one of the books that I've really, you know, benefited from and been using. So, I encourage um our listeners and viewers to go online um i got my copy from amazon so it's uh, readily available in the uk alhamdulillah so um yeah uh, i wanted to ask you stada first of all you're in memphis right tennessee yes mm-hmm. see uh i don't know about our viewers and listeners but i know very little about america okay mm. <laughs> so please tell us what is it like there what has it been like there The only thing I know about Memphis is Graceland basically. <laughs> you know, <Okay>. <laughs> well, um I've actually only been here for about a month now. So, oh, wow. I probably better tell you about the East Coast. I grew up in New York and then we were in New Jersey. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I've only been here a month. There's a really great Muslim community here. Um really beautiful nature-wise. There's the Mississippi River that's here. So, mashallah, it's a, it's a lovely place. The 
And one thing about America is that it's so diverse in terms of the landscape, Hamnena. So mm-hmm. you can just go to so many different types of places, different types of weather within the US. Right. You've got beaches, you've got canyons, mm-hmm. you've got mm-hmm. um, mountainous, very, very cold areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. SubhanAllah, you know. Yeah. I have seen America in the movies. That's that's about it. <laughs> and humble, I did manage to come to America. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I had a few years where I lived with some American sisters in mm. Egypt. Mm. Um, so they filled me in, you know, on quite a lot of the stuff. They were from uh, Baltimore, from Maryland. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're from. You're from, like, where did you grow up? Please tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So um, my parents are Caribbean immigrants. So they moved to the States when they were um, teenagers, essentially, you know, separately. There was this big wave of Caribbean immigrants that came in the 70s. My parents are part of that. And so the neighborhood we grew up in was a lot of Caribbean immigrants. Um, Both my parents are converts to Islam, converted in adulthood. And so we grew up there, Mm -hmm. and um, it's a a diverse neighborhood in in terms of different types of people from the Caribbean, the different places that everyone is from. And then within New York, it's an interesting place because it's diverse, but it's very much segregated. So everyone has their own sort of pocket of the city, but you can go to Little Italy or you can go to Chinatown, you can go to where I was, where there are a lot of Caribbeans and see different bits of everyone's culture. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that's a bit about my background. So uh, would you say, what kind of schooling did you have? Did you go to a regular school? Did you go to a Muslim school? What was your... I went to all public schools um, and in all of my public school, uh, all of my schooling actually was with that same cohort of uh, Caribbean immigrants or actually we were uh, first generation Americans. So that was most of my schooling, people like myself in that way. Um, but non-Muslim, and so yeah, that that's that was my schooling, including college, and then I went to Columbia for graduate school, so all public school. Mashallah. So, what brought you onto the path of knowledge, and and tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of seeking knowledge. Yeah, so alhamdulillah, um, being from a Muslim household, of course, you have to have some knowledge. You have to be able to pray and fast. And so, of course, I learned a lot from my parents. And then my eldest sister, she was the first one to really go out and seek knowledge. Um, so I just remember her going to different retreats and different um intenses. And I think she went to Morocco as well. And had learned was actually one of the first, in a sense, one of the first Zaytuna students, but like before it was Zaytuna. So learning from the teachers there in in California before they actually formed the Institute. So Alhamdulillah, I think I was very inspired by her. That was sort of my first glimpse to someone seeking knowledge in that way. 
And then when I became an adult, I also felt that, okay, Hamnina, I bor I'm born and raised Muslim, but I want to really be able to genuinely accept Islam for myself. Um, it's very easy to just be Muslim, your family's Muslim, you just continue on with that path. But I think there's mm -hmm. a certain depth that you get when you go out and and it doesn't necessarily have to be knowledge. That was kind of the initial path that I chose. It could also be spiritually, whatever you're doing to try and gain nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, what, in whatever you know legitimate way that you can do it. And mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to seek knowledge for that reason to better understand and to, to really have that depth of belief for myself. So um, alhamdulillah, one of the first places that I went, it was... Um, uh, center in New York where they were teaching basically beginner traditional studies. So they had beginner classes for fiqh to sew off um, and, and some other sira from some other beginner level classes. So that's what I started doing. The classes would be Saturdays, Sundays. I would end up going there basically um, every week. And then once I'd kind of exhausted the classes because <laughs> it was essentially the classes would be different. I think every every semester would be different, but like if you stayed there for two or three semesters, it was back to the classes you might have learned, you know, when you were when you first started there. So um, to advance my studies, I wanted to go overseas and try to see if I could advance it that way. Um, I did also after those classes, there were a couple of teachers who were continuing to teach and, and trying to especially teach students who had uh, been going to that center there was one class where the teacher wanted to take it like to uh, a more in-depth level with FIC because there were other students like myself who were there consistently and you know we were out of classes to take so um, wanting to just have a, a deeper sense of belief for myself is really what initially led me to, to start seeking knowledge. Alhamdulillah. So did you actually go to Zaytuna yourself? Or? No, my younger sister went to Zaytuna, but I never went. Okay. <laughs> oh, subhanAllah. So mashallah, your family, it seems like, you know, uh, are into seeking knowledge and have been. And so what would you say was your particular interest in Aisha anha, and you know what what would you say was the background to you wanting to write this book and your interest in Aisha anha in general yeah I found her interesting for a lot of different reasons so one reason I found her interesting is because we know that she's the beloved of the Prophet So then it will make you think, well, what is it about her that the Prophet loved so much? Um, and there's even a hadith that I think I have included in the book where the Prophet tells a Fatima, do you love what I love? And she says, yes. And then he says, so love Aisha, right? So we are supposed to love her as our mother. And so I wanted to know more about her for that reason. Another reason was I would hear people talk about her in terms of women in Islam who sought knowledge and who were scholars. 
but I didn't hear anything about her in depth. So it was an interesting thing of utilizing her and her scholarship as a defense against especially non-Muslim critique that we're the Muslim women scholars, but not utilizing her in the same way we would use scholars and, and use them as resources and seek knowledge from them and talk about them and talk about their lives. And so, mm-hmm. that, so that was another reason. And then, I, and I mentioned this in the book that there was also when she would come up, it would often be about her age. And I thought that even though my knowledge at the time was limited and of course still is, is still a lot more that I need to learn. I felt that if this woman was such a great scholar and the beloved of the Prophet why are we focusing on this small part of her life? You know, we're, so we're focusing on the moment she got married, what was her age, instead of, mm-hmm. you know, she lived a very long life, including after the Prophet mm-hmm. So there was a lot that happened in her life and there's a lot that she witnessed. And, and that's why, that's one reason why we can learn so much from her because she was there with the Prophet even before marriage because of Abu Bakr. So there's so much that she saw that we can learn from her, as well as once I did begin to um, dig into her story, as well as from her character and who she was as a person. SubhanAllah, you, you raised some really uh, important points because you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that Aisha mm-hmm. was only 18 when the Prophet wasallam passed away and she lived a long life. You know, she lived way into the, uh, I think, the Khilafah of Muawiyah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so she basically lived, the majority of her life was actually after the death of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's not to say that obviously those years that she spent with him were not very, very concentrated in yeah. the you know the happenings and the benefits and things that mm-hmm. you know uh, that she would have gained from those years. But it is you know strange that we often stop talking about her at the point where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, that was kind of the beginning of her new role, right? Mm-hmm. As educator of the Muslims, mm-hmm. as really a, a source. Because uh, I've always been very intrigued at how mm-hmm. Abu Bakr, of course, her father, but then Omar, especially, uh, and Uthman, and beyond, mm-hmm. and the other Sahaba, they would literally ask Aisha if there were things that mm-hmm. were blind spots for them or areas where they realized that actually she would know because nobody had that kind of, <clears throat> or very few people had that very intimate uh, relationship with the Prophet mm-hmm. that they could say things like, you know, the Prophet used to like this or he used to do this or this was his habit or that was his habit or, you know, if the Prophet was here today, he would have etc etc right Mm -hmm. those kinds of statements are only statements that somebody who's very close to somebody and who lives with them um day in day out Mm -hmm. in private times and in public would know right 
Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's the fascinating thing. And I do also find those stories fascinating where there is a dispute between the Sahaba and they go to Lady Aisha to settle their dispute, right? Someone thinks the prophet said this, someone else thinks the prophet said that, and then they go to Lady Aisha and she settles it. Um, so they they really respected her position and her knowledge. And that's another beautiful thing I find about Lady Aisha anha, because she was a great scholar of Islam but one of the things that is so beautiful about that, because in our time, when we talk about scholarship, we're talking about going to school and getting an education and becoming a scholar in that way. But a huge part of her scholarship was, of course, in observation. It was also in asking good questions and having them clarified, and of course, in her memory and also in her being curious enough to know. Oh, yes. And I think sometimes we we kind of, um, we don't realize how valuable that is to knowledge, right? Because if you just study, but you're never curious enough to ask further <laughs> questions, to ask details, yes. there's so much you wouldn't know. And, and that's a large part. It's another big reason why we have so much knowledge from her is because she asks questions. <laughs> she would ask, you know, yeah. follow-up questions that would further allow us to um, have a more in-depth knowledge from the Prophet. So Absolutely. And the thing about Aisha is, thank Allah she was curious, you know, <laughs> because <clears throat> her curiosity gave us so much, you know, subhanAllah, in terms of detail. But also she's almost like the camera, right, for the mm -hmm. whole series. Yeah. So like, even when she relates how, you know, she observed her father's friendship with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then that night when she'd never, she said she'd never seen anyone cry out of happiness before mm -hmm. she saw her father. And we're talking about, you know, a, a small kid, right, at this age, yeah. at this time. But she's looking at him and she's observing the fact that, Ras that Rasulullah sallallahu has come and asked Abu Bakr to accompany him on the hijrah mm -hmm. and her father cries. And so right from the beginning, you know, she was like this camera who gave mm -hmm. us this mm -hmm. amazing insight into the, I would say, uh, the, 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 the details of what was really going on, right, in this era. Yes, yes. And alhamdulillah, we also have Abu Bakr, who to thank for that. Um, in that story where the Prophet comes and, and is going to tell him that they are making hijrah, um, the Prophet first asks him for a, a private moment so that he can discuss this with him. And it's his daughters that are sitting with him. And he says, you know, they're from your... I forget if he uses the word ummah or family or, or what the word is precisely, yeah. but essentially to say, you know, they, they can be just as trusted. It's okay if they're here. And yeah. so we have Abu Bakr to think for him wanting his daughters to be there and to witness uh, all of this phenomena that was happening. So that closeness begins with his closeness to the Prophet and also just him allowing them to be in that space and also absorb what was happening. And that's another thing that strikes you that Aisha with her curiosity, with her, I would say quite extrovert uh, mm -hmm. personality, right? Um, 
was never suppressed. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. she was never told to not to, to be quiet, basically. Yeah. And it, the reason why I mentioned that is because I don't know about you, but certainly in um, South Asian culture, it's quite common for parents to not just with girls, with boys as well, to kind of tell them to basically be quiet and just observe mm -hmm. what the adults are doing, you know, not, mm -hmm. not really ask any questions, not really, you know, your confidence isn't necessarily mm -hmm. boosted mm -hmm. uh, by parents. And so I think one of the things that you're right, we can't lose sight of is she was the product of her parents' upbringing, right? Yes, exactly. I, I think we absolutely can't lose sight of that without that beginning, that nurturing. Um, I think it's safe to say she likely would not have been who, who she was. Um, and that is so crucial. But we do see the balance, right? They are there, but Allahu Alam, I think a part of the reason they can be there is because they're respectful, right? If they were the kind of kids who they're going to be noisy and they're going to interrupt, then maybe they would have to, you know, take space elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but even the ability to sit there and be quiet, but then to also be curious. Uh, it's one thing I, I found about Aisha Radila who and have, I think a lot of us know that she had this sort of feisty personality. And we see this in the stories of her, um, her jealousy over the Prophet But you also see this incredible humility. And that's one thing I found so interesting about her character is that balance. She is not afraid to stand up for truth. She's not afraid to ask questions that will help her better understand. In fact, she praised the Ansari women for being able to ask questions um, and not mm -hmm. allow their shyness to suppress that. But at the same time, she like one of the reasons that she was buried um, at, I believe it's called Bakar, right, where all of the wives are buried, oh, yeah. is because she says, yeah, because she says, I don't want to be seen as better than I am, right? So we might think, well, Aisha, the beloved of the Prophet, this woman of great knowledge, um, she should be buried with the, with the companions or next to the Prophet, but that's not how she actually saw herself. So what I think can come off um, to just sort of the common reader as arrogance, it really wasn't. It was more of this passion for knowledge, it, even a passion about her love for the Prophet وسلم, that caused that, that um, jealousy that she had. But we shouldn't, that shouldn't be, we shouldn't think that that is sort of, um, all her character is that humility was also mm -hmm. so crucial to her character. Definitely, I actually have that bullet pointed uh, right here in front of me. That quote that you mentioned, and, mm. yeah, and it says in on page thirty three of your book, she died at the age of sixty six on the seventeenth of Ramadan in fifty seven AH or fifty eight, and was buried in Jannat al Baqi. Before her death, she said to her nephew Abdullah ibn Az Zubair. Mm -hmm. May Allah be pleased with him. Do not bury me with the Prophet Abu Bakr and Omar, uh, but bury me with my companions, i.e. the other wives of the Prophet وسلم, in Al-Baqi, as I would not like to be looked upon as better than I really am. SubhanAllah. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. 
Of that. And I mean, how many people would say that, right? <laughs> how many of us would like to be known, not, you know, not to be known better than we really are? Right. Right. Um, it's not really a common trait anymore. <laughs> so, Very true. Um, mm. Definitely. I mean, you've highlighted so many things. And I think your, what you said about the jealousy aspect, um, mm. I think one of the things that I'm really realizing in teaching about her life is, you know, she was really human and mm -hmm. of course um, the Sahaba were the best human beings. Uh, the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them ups and downs, I believe, is so that they, they would be a model for us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that in a way it makes her so approachable, it makes her so, so true. relatable, mm -hmm. you know, that she, she did have of course, the majority of the time, you know, there there was a peaceful relationship, mm -hmm. but there were the ups and downs of life. Uh, obviously, there was the huge <clears throat> event of the ifk, the slander of Aisha, mm -hmm. a huge thing for a for a Muslim woman to go through, right? Yeah. Um, but beyond that, one of the things that I really felt was a that one of the things I noticed was that despite the fact that she had this sense of competition with the other wives, etc., mm -hmm. and and vice versa, when it came to the crunch, they were honest and they told the truth. So even, you know, during the incident of the slander, when uh, when Zainab bint Jahsh, one of the other wives of the Prophet, وسلم, was asked about Aisha, and she was like quite a rival of Aisha's, you know, they were quite uh, competitive with each other. Prophet sallallahu attention. Still, when it came to the crunch, Zainab said, I don't know anything but good about her, right? Mm -hmm. Even when Zainab passed away later on, mm -hmm. Aisha praised her mm -hmm. and mentioned all of the good things that she used to do, right? Um, SubhanAllah. So yes, what that kind of shows us is Yes, you have ups and downs. Yes, mm -hmm. you might not gel with everybody, right? Um, everyone you come across in life, mm -hmm. but that shouldn't make you unjust, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, subhanAllah, that, that moment in that story, it's so beautiful and it's so moving because it, I think we can all sort of imagine ourselves in that position when your you know, adversary, whatever it is in, in work or, or in a similar situation that they're finally at the point where they could fall and you have the opportunity to just, just push them. Let it, you know, let the, let it all, you know, sort of fall where it's going and you don't, you know, you are held back. It's such a beautiful example. Like she had, everything to gain from saying even just something small that could put doubt um but she did it subhanallah and, and that also helped to mend their relationship that moment is really beautiful and another beautiful another beautiful moment in that story is seeing what aisha radiallahu and her had to face um being the wife of the prophet sallallahu being beloved by the prophet sallallahu and being a noble woman, like you said, it would be a hard trial for any Muslim woman to go through. Um, you you just have to think about, you spend your whole life being modest, staying away from immodest situations. 
And then something like this happens and you're accused of something so lowly and there's really nothing you can do to defend yourself. And so it, it is such a difficult situation for her where not even the Prophet not until he got revelation, could say um, anything completely clear. And that's not to say that he believed what was happening or what was being spread, but it was a very difficult situation. And so in that moment, even as mother of the believers, the wife of the Prophet the beloved of the Prophet in that moment, she had to be alone. And she had to be alone with her faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Allah alam, but that trial to me in that moment that she went to went through, it really was her having in Allah alam, but it almost seems like her having to prove her individual devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Not because I'm the daughter of, of Abu Bakr, not just, or not just because I'm the daughter of Abu Bakr, not just because I'm the wife of the Prophet but this belief is sincere between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that even when the whole world is against me, I'm still going to turn to that. And Allah alam, but, but I kind of see that as a test in that way. Um, so it's a beautiful moment for her and for her belief and devotion to be able to shine through in that way. Um, and, and it was difficult for her. It was a difficult trial. Sometimes we think that when the Sahaba, when righteous people go through trials, then every single part of the way, they're just, you know, happy-go-lucky. This is a trial and mm -hmm. you're going to be rewarded from God. And, you know, just can't wait for the reward. I'm just, you know, suffering this whole time. But with a smile on my face, and, and that's not reality. As you said, she was so human. She was sad. She was hurt that people would say this about her. But even in that, she still turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who then revealed her innocence in the Quran. And in that moment, she said, I didn't think I was worthy of that. Uh, so subhanAllah, I, of course, we would prefer that our that our mother, Lady Aisha, did not go through that trial, but in her going through it, it's such a beautiful lesson for us as Muslims. Absolutely, subhanAllah. And I, I think another thing that really stands out for me is that at various stages, that even she would say, you know, she made certain mistakes, right? Things mm -hmm. that she would consider to be mistakes or misjudgments, whatever you want to call it. Um, and when she realized that they were misjudgments or mistakes, she was quick to return back, you know, quick to correct herself, quick to, I would say, adjust herself and then refocus on what whatever the right thing was. Mm -hmm. So whereas anyone else would kind of fall apart, you know, you'd lose your confidence, you'd you'd sort of think, oh, I've made such a mistake. Like, you know, I need to just basically hide away now. Um, she didn't allow it to make her, you know, stop doing good. Mm -hmm. She just adjusted herself, mm -hmm. right? She would make istighfar, she would adjust herself and then take the right way, but take it very confidently, mm -hmm. you know? Um, the, the example that I'm thinking of, mm -hmm is especially after the battle of the camel, you know, mm, right. um, when actually during that whole incident, she realized that things were going to fall apart and things mm. were going to 
go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And she never intended that. Um, but then she remembered that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam had had kind of advised her, especially and the wives, to to not go out in that way, etc. Yeah. Or that he had warned about some incident that was going to happen mm -hmm. where one of them would hear the dogs of Ho'ab, right, Sh uh, mm. barking, and he had kind of shown disapproval of that. Mm. And when she heard those dogs barking, she realized that mm. he, may have, he was talking about her. Um, and she quickly wanted to go back. Um, yeah. And yeah. in the end, when she did go back, and when Ali radiallahu anhu, you know, as we would expect, you know, being the chivalrous uh, Sahabi that he was, he had her accompanied back yeah. uh, to Medina. Um, you know, I know that she seemed to be very sad about that incident. Even mm -hmm. on her deathbed, she kind of remembered it and, you know, she kind of regretted some of those things. Right. At the same time, from that moment until the end of her life, mm -hmm. it's almost as though she redoubled her efforts in mm -hmm. doing... Mm -hmm. Doing the good, which is basically what she knew was her job. Mm -hmm. In fact, it kind of crystallized for her, mm -hmm. I think, that the political realm was not yeah. going to be the right place for her. Uh, instead, the realm of knowledge, right? Uh, preserving the sunnah, nurturing that next generation of scholars uh, became her main focus, I think. Right. That, that's such a, an important and valuable point is that she felt remorseful about that that so-called battle um, in itself. And I say so-called battle because it's not as yeah. if Aisha and had actually fought, right? It was it was right. a difficult situation. Like this when I read it, it's very interesting because Allah alam, but it doesn't seem that that was her intention. It doesn't seem like no, her no, intention was war, mm -hmm. right? Or, or a battle. So, it was something that basically went out of hand and exactly uh, with some other people who basically instigated things, etc. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And so, even it's interesting because even in her being a part of that and then like you said i think it simply got out of hand and of course people were were killed um but her intention was right in the sense that she right. wanted justice right justice and and exactly as you said once she realized that she was mistaken then she was remorseful because her intention is in the right place to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have justice to be a leader in her in her own way and continue to preserve the message of the Prophet. So when that intention is clear, then once she realizes oh, I was mistaken, then she can um resort. Um and I think you're right that she spent so much time on the younger generation, especially those close to her, connected mm -hmm. to her, um yeah. her nephews and, and young women. Yeah, she spent so much time teaching them and preserving that knowledge with them. And subhanAllah, that, that's such a lesson for us because in a, I'll just say outside of that situation, but in a general sense, you could imagine that if you get caught up in something and people die, that could be a reason for someone to throw up their hands for the rest of their right. life and just yes. live in so much remorse that it actually disables them. Um, right. But 
but I think the way you put it is so correct that she doubled her efforts. You hear so many stories from Aisha and how she received money because the, the wives received money from this, right. essentially. Mm -hmm. And she would give it all away at once <laughs> to the point mm -hmm. where she yeah. would have nothing left for herself because she wasn't thinking about herself. And so yeah. she was preparing for the Akhara for, for all of her life, but but what you said, um, Allahu Alam, but that does seem correct that her efforts amplified even more after that incident. Definitely. And um, yeah, it just came to me uh, because uh, recently I think I had something that happened that a mistake that I felt I made. And, uh, you know, it, you know, it makes you lose your confidence when you make a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. It makes you sort of think, well, maybe I should just lead the quiet life, you know, and just um, sort of hide away and, and stop doing what I'm doing. But in a way, that's also, you know, something that could be a trick of shaitan, right? To stop us from, from doing, from, from yeah. basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because not everything, if you make a mistake, doesn't mean everything you're doing is wrong, right? It just means, okay, pinpoint the mistake, stop doing that. And, you know, put your efforts into the right thing, right? Right. And we're human, of course. She's human and we're human. And we want our intentions to be in the correct place. But if we make a mistake, even the most noble women have made mistakes. And so we shouldn't feel uh, too bad about them. We just correct mm -hmm. and, sad and we try to double our efforts. Um, but having, and we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward us for the correct intention anyway. So even being able to have that, and that's something that we have the most control over uh, is so important. Absolutely. Um, Stava, I wanted to uh, pick your brains on this topic of, um, I guess the way that in the modern times, uh, you know, Muslim women uh, are kind of, it feels as though, what, well, let, let me put it, let me be fair to the topic, right? <laughs> On the one hand, there have been a lot of positives, right? So I remember growing up in the 80s, right? Or uh, yeah, in the 80s in London, there was hardly anyone like who wore hijab, right? Mm -hmm. My mom would be like the only one. And she was subject to quite a lot of racial abuse, you know, because of that. But slowly and surely, you know, things have changed. Like now, you know, they call London, Londonistan, right? <laughs> because, because, mashallah, like London, wearing the hijab is normal now in London. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but also because, you know, like even visibly in the media, etc., uh, we do have women who observe the hijab. In politics, we have women who observe the hijab, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And I'm only using the hijab as, I guess, a visible kind of symbol of a practicing Muslim, right? A Muslim woman mm -hmm. um, uh, or a recognizable one, right? Uh, and that's a great thing. That's been a good thing. It means that our daughters are growing up, I guess, um, you know, without some of those feelings, hopefully, without some of those feelings of being the only one, being the odd one out type thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there does seem to be 
some kind of concerted effort to mm. almost appropriate the hijab mm. as as a sort of accessory, right? Mm, yeah. um, such that it becomes just another tool of consumerism, mm. right? And a fashion. Yeah. Uh, so maybe initially, you know, when you saw hijab becoming more normal, normalized, or for example, in the UK, they were like swimming gear for Muslim women, you know, quite covering and modest swimming uh, outfits. Uh, available in mainstream stores, you know, people got quite happy, right? So, wow, it's, you know, it's becoming normalized in that sense. Uh, but then it's kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on that because mm. the double-edged sword aspect, I mean, is when these big fashion companies and when, you know, uh, YouTubers who, you know, at the end of the day, the whole kind of YouTuber system, I would say, often works on affiliate marketing, right? Mm -hmm. On uh, promoting products, uh, being paid to promote products or being sent products in order to promote them. Um, when that becomes so overwhelming and it becomes almost like the only thing being presented mm -hmm. to women, some women, mm -hmm. uh, and it starts to affect girls, you know, because I've heard from parents, you know, girls are being affected to the extent that they're becoming obsessed with their looks. I mean, mm. that's a problem in wider society anyway, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's happening to Muslim girls as well. You know, you, you start worrying, like, subhanAllah, we were we were supposed to be the ones with the healthy relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Regarding beauty. We had a place for beauty, a place for, you know, kind of uh you know being glamorous and everything and we had a space that we would mm. you know have this uniform in a way right uh and in a way it was nice to be able to go from that to that mm -hmm. but now the entire space it feels we're being encouraged to fill with fashion beautification and the commodity commodification of women mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to hear your thoughts on that you know I've said enough I think Habana, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think you made a lot of good points you know I want to just first say kind of tying it into Aisha and how before I go to um, your specific topic in she was such a modest woman. And I think that as Muslim women, it's very hard to accept or appreciate in this society that you can have such an impact that has nothing to do with looks. And I think that you're right. There was a certain point, and Allah, maybe it goes through cycles, but I do feel there was a certain point where as Muslim women, we could feel comfort in that, right? We felt like... Mm -hmm even though there are hard aspects of this, subhanAllah, it's kind of freeing to not have to do my hair in a certain way every day or keep up with certain hairstyles and certain looks that are that are popular because I'm modest. So I'm sort of free from that aspect of consumerism and commodification, like you said, and the male gaze and all of that. I'm sort of free from that um, because I dress modest. So I don't have to worry about those things in front of strangers, right? Um, so I think that that is such an important point that it, it is it is 
interesting and it can be conflicting because in one sense, I am happy for the younger generation that they have more, that hijab is more normalized, right? So it's probably less likely that you go to school today and are made fun of for your hijab. Now, Allah, I can't say that 100%, but mm -hmm. I would feel that would be the case because of all of these popular hijabis on Instagram and YouTube, Allah Alam. Uh, we would need a, a younger person to tell us, but that would mm -hmm. seem to be the case. And if that is the case, that's a great thing to not be bullied for wearing hijab or made fun of for wearing hijab. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, like you said, because hijab has been so stylized, then now, okay, you don't have to worry about your hair, but you have to worry about the latest hijab styles and the, the <laughs> colors and whatever is in, in style now on Instagram. Um, and you can't, it, it was kind of acceptable in a sense as a Muslim, not everyone did it, but it was somewhat acceptable as a Muslim woman to be a quote unquote plain Jane outside, right? To wear your plain black abaya and your plain black mm -hmm. scarf or some combination of loose fitting clothing. Of course, some Muslim women have, have always liked to dress nicer and fancier and all of that, but it was at least acceptable. Whereas now with younger people, is it acceptable to be that when you have all of these hijabi fashionista um, type people and million and one hijab styles and they're selling the hijabs, of course, and selling the makeup and selling the clothes. It is, it's, it's very, it's interesting. Allahu alam is, especially I know when I was younger, there weren't a lot of modest clothing choices, right? Um, so we had to try to combine different things together to try to look as modest as possible. Whereas now there are a ton of modest clothing stores. And so they have so many choices, um, but being kind of grouped into that general fashion scene. And, and then we can also talk about with the modesty culture and, and Instagram and all of that. That's also kind of conflicting too, because the parading of modesty is kind of anti-modest, right? So, right. Mm. But it, it can be hard to have these discussions with younger Muslim women because they feel that they have all these difficulties with having to stand out and, and wear a hijab in a non-Muslim society. So they're happy that there's more of um, these images that are more positive. But what what is the balance between trying to be modest and promote modesty but not do it in an immodest way when in some ways, a lot of these platforms are inherently immodest. Right. I think anyone, um, myself included and yourself, you know, we, we would have had quite a difficult time kind of drawing, I guess, the lines with regards to okay, yeah. how much we want to be in the public space. And because I don't think we should be afraid to say that the Muslim woman her kind of primary domain or, you know, she's not necessarily, she's not encouraged to necessarily be the one who's, you know, standing or sitting in front of everybody being very visible, you know, physically visible. That's not, that's not necessarily where our strength lies. Right. Uh, and, and that's why like, you know, sometimes when people are calling and saying, you know, where are the female 
scholars, where the female speakers, yeah. sometimes I think, look, just because you can't see them on a poster, you know, it doesn't mean they don't exist. Uh, often, yeah. I, I know that a lot of sisters, they actually choose not to be kind of mm -hmm. in that very public space. Mm -hmm. And I respect that opinion or their, mm -hmm. you know, choice to do that because they're doing a lot of work in their local communities. Maybe you don't hear about it. It yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't have impact. But also with being in the public domain comes a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to be quite thick-skinned. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and you have to kind of know your own boundaries, right? Uh, right, right. And, and that, it's funny, I, I'm doing this class on womanhood and femininity, and in the class, then one of the students mentioned this as um, it, it's so empowering to see more women scholars. And I get that, and I don't disagree with that, but I also think it's important that we don't just uplift women who are in the public space. And so I know, for example, when I was in Jordan, I had access to so many female shayuk, um, but that was in part, be well, of course, because I was there, <laughs> but it was also in part because I knew them. So I knew that, okay, they're teaching this class on this day in their home. Um, and if you don't know them, you, you wouldn't know that. But the assumption, which goes into a, a larger issue, that if you're not seen, then you're not doing anything or your work is not valuable. It's a big problem. There are, even if you're not a scholar, if you're a woman who's at home and you're taking care of your home and you're doing your best to be a good wife and a good mother, that is so important for society as well. Um, so, it, and it's not that we're saying, you know, obviously we're here, we're not saying that we want women to be prevented from the space, from public spaces. But we, I think it is important to say that we have to appreciate the private domain as well, and possibly even more so than the public domain. Mm -hmm. I also think what you said was important about there being a space for beauty. Um, that's a conversation that, that I would love to see more of us talk about. Uh, I, I wrote that once on Twitter, maybe a month or so ago, as it kind of felt like an epiphany because even though we know it, I think it has to be said that hmm. when it comes to modesty, modesty is important, but modesty is relevant for us as Muslim women when it comes to non-mahram men. That's when it has the most relevance. That's when you have to be covered up. But if you're around women, if you're around your family, if you're around your husband, it's okay to be beautiful and show your beauty and wear the makeup and all you know the beautiful colors and all of that. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to get into whether that's okay outside, like that's another conversation, but it's so valuable for us to realize that there are other spaces outside of the public domain. That's such a limited space outside of the, the public space when you're around non-mahram men. That is a very limited space. There are all these other spaces where you don't have to worry at all. You can be as beautiful as you want. Um, so I think that's important too, that realizing, um, that talking about modesty, but reminding women that it's also important to be beautiful. And let me not say it's important. It's also okay to be beautiful in other spaces. Um, and also just discussing when you're not modest in particular spaces, when you're wearing certain clothing in public spaces, 
what kind of attention is that bringing towards you? What kind of, um, I don't know, just sort of negative attention or attention that maybe you're not intending to get, but simply because you're dressed in a certain way and there are non-mahram men on social media, then you're causing yourself that kind of attention, that kind of hate. And then you're in this space where, like you said, you have to have a, a thick skin. But if you're doing something on there that isn't, I don't know, this might, <laughs> that isn't necessarily valuable in and of itself, mm. then why are you on there? Why are you even fighting to be on there? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not going to be as kind as you, uh, okay. <laughs> and I'm going to say, uh, because look, I'm a woman, right? We know, we know how it works, right? Um, as women, we enjoy admiration, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as a wife, I want my husband to admire me. I, mm-hmm. We adore uh, the male gaze, right? Uh, the right male gaze, I would say. Uh, <laughs> we should adore the right male gaze. Um, you know, looking at us admiringly, and there's nothing wrong with that in the halal context, right? We're, in fact, we're encouraged to do that. Mm-hmm. In fact, we can be into fashion. We can be into these things, right? Um, as long as we don't go beyond the bounds and we're not wasting money and we're not wasting you know, all of our lives in it, Mm. There's nothing wrong with loving beautiful things. The Prophet ﷺ loved beautiful clothing. You know, he loved uh, he loved beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aisha she used to borrow, she used to have a dress, right? That people used to borrow from her sometimes. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. used to borrow a necklace from, mm. from her sister, the famous necklace that would always get mm-hmm. lost, mm-hmm. right? So beautification, see, I, I don't want the wrong message to get across to our sisters that, mm-hmm. you know, beautification is there's anything wrong with it i mean like in the right space right i mean remember that wonderful space we used to have you know where uh beauty was kept to that you know space where sisters would and it still does exist it's not that it's gone uh but sisters would literally come in wrapped up and then you know before you knew it, everyone had looking beautiful, glamorous, you know, we would enjoy that space fully and we would be free and we wouldn't mm-hmm. be worried about kind of, you know, anyone looking at each other in the wrong way or right. any of that kind of thing. And we enjoyed, and we enjoy in that space, true sisterhood, mm-hmm. we each other's beauty. Um, I, I really wish that we could and we should encourage our sisters to reclaim that private space mm, yeah. and to remove the public space from being mm. a space of sexualization, etc. Mm. You know, we as Muslim women, we were like the, I would say, uh, the kind of flag bearers for that. You know, mm-hmm. for for removing this or for being against the sexualization of the public space and the commoditization yeah. of women. Sadly, I fear that we're falling, you know, victim to um, to certain industries. I would say, right? I, I I completely agree with that, and I would say reclaim and also create for those who haven't right. had, because of course there are, are converts who don't necessarily have that culture, but it can be created. Right. I think that's so important, and I 
you know, unfortunately, because we live in a society that, that feeds us certain ideas, I don't think we really understand the impact or, or I'm not even sure how to word it, but I feel that some women really don't understand the way that their immodesty, subhanAllah, it's so hard to try and say the exact right now. You're being, you're being very, very careful. Uh, <laughs> but look, I, I just want to make the point here. I, I know why you're being very careful. It's because, you know, we love our sisters and we, subhanAllah, sisters, you know, anyone out there who's listening to this, you know, nobody wants to talk about this topic unless they really love you for the sake of Allah. Because unfortunately, you know, the, the, the propensity for people to think that you're being overly critical or judgmental, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. is, is quite high. Mm -hmm. So I just want to reassure you know, our listeners, and I, I'm sure they understand this, that, you know, as women who have studied the deen, uh, Ustad Nur deen and myself, it becomes a duty on us to love for you what we love for ourselves. And just mm -hmm. as our mother Aisha, anha, you know, women would come in front of her and sometimes, and it's not just about the hijab, it could be about any issue. Mm -hmm. If something was visibly incorrect in front of her, she mm -hmm. would correct that. Mm -hmm. Just as mm -hmm. she did that in her time, right? Aisha Radilana is no longer here. Yeah. In her place yeah. are the female scholars that are here, right? Mm -hmm. And the scholars. And so it becomes our duty and it's out of our love and mm -hmm. immense, I would say, mm -hmm. desire for you and for us to go to Jannah and to mm -hmm. please Allah um, that we talk about this, right? So, right. Right, subhanAllah. I remember one of my teachers in Jordan, <laughs> she was too many, and I, I could understand why her delivery would be very harsh on, on some issues. But it yeah. took some time to realize that she really does love us, and she loves Islam, and she loves Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and she wants for us what she wants for herself so it's not harshness for the sake of being harsh it's with a purpose and right. I, I think that a part of the hesitation on talking about these issues including for myself is that I do empathize with what younger Muslim women especially a lot of these women are in their 20s um, I empathize with what they are dealing with and I empathize with the fact that they may feel well I'm more modest than non-Muslim so why are you still you know harassing me about this issue um, but I think that we have kind of lost the reality that, like you said, being in those all women spaces, there's a freedom you can have with being beautiful. There's no worries about anything. Or if you're with your husband and you're you're beautiful. But when it's in front of non-mahram men, then there is the danger. So what Allah Sorry, wouldn't you say there are also diseases of the heart that are at play? There are also diseases of the heart. Exactly. And so all of this negative attention and just negative effect of being beautiful in the wrong spaces, right? So, you know, and, and I would say on a practical note, it's okay to simply try to do better than you did yesterday. You know, no one's, most of us are not going to completely go from zero to 100. Now you're completely, uh, I knew this one convert sister that when she became Muslim, she actually did 
completely start wearing abaya and niqabs every once in a while you have women like that but for the most part if we're immodest or not as modest as we can be we can do better slowly we can, we can do better than we were doing before um it, it's also i think about sometimes like wouldn't it be great if there was maybe an all women's instagram or something <laughs> someone could create yeah. Because yeah. like you said, women have the urge to be admired. It, it's true yeah. for most of us as women. Uh, but how do we do that in the right spaces so that we don't garner the negative attention and so that we're doing it in a halal way as well? And I think the other aspect of this is keeping Allah as your number one yeah. focus. And I think that sometimes gets lost, doesn't it, in this mm -hmm. conversation? Because we, when we sometimes talk about, you know, the reasons or the benefit the wisdoms behind hijab right we forget that actually the main thing to mention is that it's a command of allah, allah mm -hmm. who loves us who wants what's best for us everything he commanded us with it's for our own good and everything he prohibited us from it's because there's something harmful in it mm -hmm. right when that Lord of ours, who loves us so much and created us, knows us inside out, gives us a command. We we want to follow it properly because we know that it will please him and because it will bring us success, right? Right. SubhanAllah, we cannot lose sight of that at all. That's really number one. The, the reasons are valuable because they can add to the strength of our conviction. But the first and most important reason is, of course, obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it, it, that also plays into the reasons as well, because Allah knows his creation better than we do. So we may say, well, I should be able to do X, Y, Z and not have this consequence. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's in people's hearts more than we do. He knows how people react to certain things more than we do. And he's in control of that behavior, not us. And so I think you're absolutely right that if we keep that at the forefront, that we're striving for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then hopefully it will make that easier. That it doesn't downplay the difficulty of wearing hijab in the West. Of course, it's difficult. But we can still strive for the sake of Allah and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us ease in that matter. Yeah, inshallah. And I think one of the important things in that regard is to be around the sort of people and the kind of environment that is conducive, right? And to make sure you have those spaces where you are supported in uh, obeying Allah and being around, being in the suhbah of people who who remind you of him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And just to hone in on that, that point you mentioned again, it's interesting because, yeah, if you lose sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, you know, anything can become an idol. And, and idols aren't just things that, you know, people build with their hands and, and worship. It's really anything that distracts us from Allah. It can be a smaller, very small shirk, or it can be a larger shirk, but still these things yeah. that distract us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we, so it's like, we are creating this modesty thing as if it's, for itself. So we're creating our own definitions of what modesty is and what's okay. And I think you're absolutely right that we have lost sight of this being for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
Um, because I do think if that was at the forefront, we would probably make different decisions about how we choose to present ourselves on social media, how we choose to sell modesty, quote unquote, what we are, are okay accepting. Um, it's another point that, that I just thought of is about hijab is kind of an interesting issue as well, because we've, we've become so focused on the scarf, right? So you wear whatever you want, and then you just slap a headscarf on. Whereas Islam talks about a more holistic modesty, right? Wearing loose, opaque clothing and uh, covering, you know, everything but your your hands and your face. And that's how we're supposed to dress. But the fixation on the hijab, and maybe in part because then it's sellable, right? In a capitalist society, it's something easy to then commodify and sell back to Muslim women. Uh, but maybe having that more holistic um, approach that which is the approach from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would also be helpful. Absolutely. And uh, the, I guess the last thing I would say on that topic, and, you know, please feel free to add, is one of my uh, teachers, she said to me, you know, Fatima, never apologize for talking to people about the commands of Allah. You know, mm-hmm. you know apologetic about it, and and that's why you know I don't think we should have any kind of reservation in telling our sisters, you know, that the hijab does have conditions. It is a command from Allah in the Quran. It has conditions, and uh, it's for our own good. Um, in in obeying Allah, every aspect of it, obedience to Allah has good that comes from it. That's one thing I wanted to mention, and the other thing is. A political point, which is that um, I don't think a lot of sisters realize that in the history of colonialism, mm. hijab has been a symbol of the colonialists' power over Muslims, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Muslim communities. And I mean, most poignantly, I think uh, the academic and historian Franz Fanon wrote about it when he wrote about Algeria and the, mm. the way the French you know, colonized Algeria. And he talks about how the hijab was, uh, you know, and the veil in general was kind of a focus of the French colonialists. And for them, it was really a symbol of whether they had taken over that culture or not, right? And stripped those people of their of their values, um, and so that's why you know, Subhanallah. What what that kind of indicates to you is that although the hijab isn't the be all and end all of what it is to be a Muslim woman, it is certainly it is certainly a symbol of our adherence to the Deen, right? Because it is a command in the Quran. It's one of the most kind of well known aspects, I would say, of being a Muslim woman. And so even those who had tried to subjugate and colonize Muslim communities and, you know, mm-hmm. literally strip them of their values and cultures saw the importance of trying to influence Muslim women in particular, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, if you want, you can look up, brothers and sisters, the quote from Franz Fanon's book where he talks about how Every veil that they were able to remove, mm-hmm. every job that came off, because basically they made 
they, they created a system where they incentivized Algerian women and their husbands to basically unveil. And they created campaigns, advertising campaigns, right? Targeted at Muslim women saying, aren't you beautiful? Then why don't you unveil, right? And they tried to influence and focus on the hijab when it came to Muslim women because they saw it as a symbol of their adherence to an attachment to Islam. Yeah, I, I think that is really valuable to think about. There's this really good book by Rafia Zakaria called The Veil. She might be British, actually, I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting because it reminded me of a part in her book where she talks about more than to go into the harem and to interview these women and take photographs of these unveiled women. Even, I think she goes back, I don't know, I don't remember exactly when she goes back to, maybe it's the 1800s or before, of, you'll see these paintings, right, of these Muslim women in these society with their kind of undressed, unveiled, and it was these Europeans who were able to get into these spaces and see the unveiling of, okay, how do these women look without the veil? But it's yeah. a power thing as well, because, mm. you know, and sometimes mm. I think really the hijab is not that interesting in a sense. It's just a piece of cloth, <laughs> um, right? But there, there's a power thing there. There is a, it's almost like how do we as women have the audacity to not care about fashion trends, to not care yeah. about what is or isn't acceptable in, in the non-Muslim society, to not want to unveil before them. And, and that's really powerful to think about as well. I also want to say, you know, because people will say, we talk too much about hijab. And I do think it is, it just kind of reminds me of scholars and even the prophets, uh, you have to address issues that are relevant to the time, right? So this happens to be an issue that is very relevant to our time. If most women were not struggling with modesty and it wasn't a big deal, we wouldn't talk about it. Um, but it, it is an issue in our time. So it should be talk, spoken about for that reason. It's relevant to what's happening. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because I'm, I'm sure that Allahu alam that yeah. criticism may come up of here they go again talking about hijab. And you know, as long as it's relevant, then scholars, yeah. teachers, anyone involved should talk about it. Yeah, and also I think anything anything that is important, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran, right? <laughs> anything that was I mean, it was important enough for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to talk about in the Quran. So it's important enough for us to you know, honor and talk about and and I would say uh, not lose sight of the fact that like as we mentioned earlier, you know, it is about our connection to Allah. And mm -hmm. you know, when you focus on Allah and you make Allah your number one concern in terms mm -hmm. of who you want to impress, then Allah loves you and which is the love that all of us are really yearning, right? Deep down. Um, and he makes the world love you too. You know, he brings the world round. Cause, I mean, I just remember moments in childhood when at school I would be the only hijabi and people would make fun of me or make jokes about me, etc. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it was in good, uh, you know, with good kind of spirit, I guess. But um, when my friends grew up and we've all grown up now, 
um, some of them have contacted me and said, you know, we were, we actually always used to admire you. You know, <laughs> we actually used to admire you. You were you were not under the pressure to to kind of have to have a boyfriend and have mm -hmm. to like go through these things that we weren't ready to go through, you know, but we were kind of pressured to go through. Mm -hmm. And we kind of admired that in you. So sometimes we think people are looking at us with a critical eye, but people have a fitra inside, you know. And um, yes, yeah. no, that that is, that's so, it's true and it's so crucial. Um, there's a book that we're reading in, in this class I'm teaching it, inshallah next month, uh, this book, Return to Modesty. Maybe you've read that, but she speaks about how it is so difficult now. Uh, so Return to Modesty by Wendy Shallot. She speaks about how it's so difficult for young women to refuse intercourse or sexual activity with young men because they don't have the backing of society. They don't, they can't even really say, well, what will my parents think? Because the parents are telling them, well, here, just be safe. Here's all this stuff. Right. Um, whereas as Muslims, all we have to do is say, I'm Muslim. And then we're free from all of that. <laughs> and that's included in modesty if we choose. Now, if we choose to be commodified with the rest of society, well then we have the same pressures. But if we choose, we can say, well, I'm modest, I'm a hijabi, I'm not interested in those things and, and also be free of that. Yeah, and, and not to forget that, inshallah, Allah has put a, a system in place or our community hopefully has, has a system in place that will help you to, inshallah, find that partner, right? That person who you're going to marry, build a family with um and experience love romance all mm -hmm. those things that that we will want you know especially when we're young um we we dream of inshallah uh, those things those things lie ahead of us inshallah uh we shouldn't feel that by going along with the popular culture that's going to be the the right way to kind of attain those things right 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 yeah, and um, and I think the other aspect of it is that I, I guess all of us, you know, have been on a journey when it comes to hijab. You know, we we go through phases. We um, sometimes we don't have knowledge, or we don't have the uh, the the support, or sometimes we you know don't have the will, right? Uh, but we hopefully, you know, with sincerity, with dua with a lot of dua asking Allah to make us stronger to help us to be able to mm -hmm. to do this having the right I guess um having a supportive group of friends and uh mentors mm -hmm. uh we you know so many sisters have made that decision and go forth courageously and I just want to acknowledge all our sisters out there, you know, because yeah. I know that it isn't easy when all these industries are kind of um, putting so much pressure on us and making us kind of judge our own value on our outer appearance. Um, and the whole of society's kind of gone along with that for so long. Um, it is hard to, you know, go against the grain. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's what leadership is, right? That's what... Right. That's right. what the believer has been charged with. Right. Um, Absolutely. Alhamdulillah. You know, again, we want to do things solely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
Um, but even I think slowly we're seeing the wisdom of so many of these rules that maybe we think are so strict or whatever else. Um, but we're we're seeing the wisdom of them over time through what non-Muslim women are dealing with. So many of those issues we're free from as Muslim women. So alhamdulillah, we, we should be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and know that in striving, there is benefit both in this life and in the next, inshallah. Inshallah, yeah, absolutely. So many new rules are coming into place now at work, you know, mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. like uh, women are women are actually in Britain, there were women who actually say, you know, why do I have to wear heels to work? You know, like, <laughs> why do I have to if I don't want to, if they're painful mm -hmm. or if, you know, and why, why does it matter that, uh, you know, why do I have to be embraced at work? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, we, they want there to be rules in place so that they don't have to have that kind of physical contact, you know? Yes. Um, and in other places there, there are new rules, for example, about not being in a room alone, right? And stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, uh, so I think, you know, and these are, some of these things are, obviously Islamic as well, right? In the sense mm -hmm. that we've already been given those guidelines not to be right. in complete seclusion with the opposite sex, mm -hmm. uh, not to have that kind of physical contact with an non-mahram, etc. Um, and those things are some of the things like you mentioned, um, that society is realizing the benefits of actually, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So Ustad Nuruddin, I, I really appreciate you uh, giving us so much of your time. Um, yeah. My last question to you is going to be that how are things in terms of, you know, lockdown and stuff where you're at and, you know, I just, I'm always interested to know, like, what's the latest, like, uh, have things opened up now? Are things going better? It, things, things have been very tough in America because they're, just the way that we function so different states doing different things. I was in New Jersey, but we're from New York. Um, so there was the lockdown in New York, but then people are of course suffering economically. So they try to lift the, the lockdown and just have social distancing. Of course, I'm sure everyone knows that our president caught COVID. So there, there's been a mix of people who are trying to be super cautious and people who aren't so cautious. Um, but it has been, I think we've been relatively cautious. And I do admit like SubhanAllah, I've more recently felt the impact because I am more of a homebody and an introvert. So I don't go out that much, but now I'm starting to feel what probably a lot of other people <laughs> felt sooner is mm -hmm. this, it's kind of painful to not be able to just freely go outside and breathe in fresh air to have to wear these, um, the mask that, you know, it's pretty tight on your face. Um, sorry. I was going to say, gloves are actually much more comfortable because, oh, for sure. for you know, sure. at the bottom you have like this, um, it's open. So you can yeah, actually breathe. Like I tried one of those face masks. Actually, comfortable. It's actually less comfortable than a top, right? SubhanAllah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I should pull out one of my only cups, inshallah. It is more comfortable <laughs> because the face mask is just completely on your face. It's, it's kind of hard to breathe. So we're dealing with it. And SubhanAllah, I just think about 
I don't think anyone thought it would last this long. So we're just all fatigued with COVID and all we've had to do. And we're hoping and praying all will just relieve us from this thing and, and allow us to go back to some sense of normalcy, inshallah. Inshallah. The one, one good thing that has come from this mm. time is that I was able to speak to you because I think you know, when we were back in pre-COVID time, we would, have, we would have waited for you to come to London one day, you know, and just <laughs> happen to be able to book you. And, you know, the chances of that are uh, much smaller than than uh, being able to meet in this way. And I pray to yeah. Allah that he gives me the opportunity to meet you in person, inshallah. And inshallah, inshallah. Um, I, I want to tell you that I love you for the sake of Allah. Alhamdulillah. And I really mean that because, you know, subhanAllah, like, that's one of the blessings of Islam that, mm. you know, we might not know somebody in person, mm. but, because of their work, because of their words, because of that connection you have, and you can see that yeah. they're jealous, somebody who, who fears Allah, somebody who cares about Allah's deen, you just mm. feel that love for them. Yes. Yes. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. May um, Allah unite us in this life. And if we don't get to meet in this life, may may we meet in Jannah, inshallah. Amen, amen, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. May Allah bless you for writing your wonderful book as well. Uh, brothers and sisters, do you get a copy of it? 40 Hadith of our mother Aisha radiallahu anha. And with that, inshallah, I'm going to wrap up. So jazakallah khair and wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Ustaz Nurdin. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So dear brothers and sisters, uh, with that, we wrap up another episode of the Enfield podcast. Uh, do share this episode with others, you know, maybe there are some sisters you know who are struggling, maybe some sisters who would like some some clarity or some inspiration. Hopefully uh, my conversation with Ustad Nuruddin will uh, inspire them and ignite something uh, positive in them. Jazakum uh, khairan. Do leave any comments, any suggestions for guests uh, for myself um, in the comments below. And inshallah, with that, I will bid you farewell. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.